Good, good. I don't know where to put this. I'll put it right here. Yes, so my name is Eric Foltz. I am a second year intern with Crew. I graduated from Ball State in May of 2015, studied cellular and molecular biology. Uh, here on camp, thank you. Here on campus, I lead the outreach team. So that is the team that is responsible for, yes, responsible for planning all the semesterly outreaches. And I also lead our Greek ministry called Greek Crew. Yes, I love my job. All the claps, thank you. But one of the best things about me is that I'm married to Ashley Foltz. A lot of you know her. Thank you, thank you. Yes, huge joy of my life. This is a picture uh, taken of us this summer on our summer mission trip with crew to East Asia. So you'll hear a lot more about that in the coming months, but we've been married for just over a year and she totally adds color and richness to my life. I'm really grateful for her. Um, so, yeah, can't say anything sweet without an ah. But tonight, we're going to continue our talk series, which is called Jesus is Better, through the book of Hebrews. And tonight, we're going to study about why Jesus is better than the angels in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. So you can open to that now if you want. But I want to ask you something. <clears throat> Have any of you ever been in a situation where you missed out on important information because you failed to listen and pay attention? Like everyone, right? Well, though I love my wife Ashley so much, this happens to me a lot because somehow I forget to pay attention to her from time to time. So, to what she's saying, to what she's saying, and honestly, it happens a lot more often than I'd probably like to admit. Um, I feel like it's every other day that she mentions something to me, and I ask her, like, why are you just now telling me this? And she says, I told you this last week. Uh, for instance, like a month ago, we had a weekend wedding that we were going to, and I'd been planning what I was going to do that weekend around this event. And so on the Thursday night before the weekend, I say something to her like, hey, what time do we have to leave for that wedding on Sunday? And she said, the wedding's tomorrow, on Friday. And so I said, why'd you tell me it was Sunday then? She said, I didn't. And she made the observation to me that it has been on our refrigerator for the past, like, two months. But all this to say that I had, I had to switch around all my plans that weekend because I failed to listen to her, and my mind drifted away. So men, you can take some notes on what not to do when your wife or girlfriend is talking to you. And all of this happened because I wasn't paying attention to Ashley when she was speaking. So maybe you can relate. Have you guys ever had a parent tell you to do something when you weren't listening and then you didn't do it because you didn't hear it and you got in trouble like everyone? Is that classic text like, text me when you get there, let me know. Like nobody ever does that. Um, <laughs> but not paying attention, it can have a, much worse consequences. It could be a lot worse than, than that. You know, people get in serious car accidents because they're not paying attention and they drift off the road. However, failure to pay attention cannot, can have not only physical, but spiritual consequences. And this happens when our neglect of the gospel causes us to drift away from Jesus himself. 
And that's the danger that the author of Hebrews is addressing in our passage tonight. So tonight we're going to see that because Jesus is so much greater than any person or any other message that we should anchor ourselves to, that we should hold fast. So again, last week Corey taught from Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to teach from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 all the way to the end of chapter 2. So two chapters. Uh, It's a big passage. I'm going to go through it section by section as we come to it. So before we start, I'd love to pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time that you've given us tonight to come here and consider the greatness of Jesus. And I ask tonight that as I speak, that you would be doing something here. Because I can speak good words. I could speak with wisdom and eloquence, but if you're not moving, if you're not teaching us, then it's for nothing. And so I just ask, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and allow us just to know that Jesus is better. So we pray this in your name. Amen. So I want to start our time by reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So I'm going to come back to chapter 1. I'm going out of sequence of the passage to go to this first, but logically it's in sequence. So if you want to go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So, this is kind of the main purpose of of the talk we're we're gonna have tonight. The author's telling us to pay close attention to the message we've heard, otherwise we'll drift. So if you Googled the definition of drifting, you would get this definition. To be carried slowly by a current of air or water. So here are a few facts about drifting in water that make sense and I want to share with you. So drifting doesn't require any effort. You drift wherever it's going and you don't have to, you don't have to do anything, you just naturally drift. Uh, it's usually an unconscious process, unless you're like riding a lazy river or something. Uh, you can never drift upstream. You always go with the mainstream. And the speed going downstream, it only ever increases. The farther you drift, the more the speed of the drift increases. So keep that in your mind as, you, as we, we talk about drifting tonight. So we as believers are often tempted to drift away from the gospel message. You know, we can be tempted by our self-sufficient pride to drift away into legalism and trying to earn God's favor. Many of us are tempted by our culture or the media and the knowledge of our former ways to slide back into worldliness and licentiousness. The Jewish believers, the original audience of this letter, were being tempted to drift away from Christianity and revert back into Judaism. So my guess is that you guys aren't struggling with reverting to Judaism. Maybe some of you are. My guess is none of you are, but uh, the reality is, if that's not your struggle, you're still tempted 
to drift away from the gospel in some way or another. So that's the main problem the author is addressing. And I want to share three reasons tonight why we should anchor ourselves to Jesus and his gospel message so that we don't drift. So the first one is that we should hold fast to the gospel message because Jesus is the Son of God who is exalted above the angels. So in the Old Testament, angels are a really big deal. They show up as messengers of God, and usually when they do, people freak out. Uh, angels aren't like those cute little figurines that grandma has on her shelf. They are fearful, majestic creatures. And that's why every time they appear to Jews, they have to say, do not be afraid. And the angels were messengers of God. So whenever a Jew met an angel, it was a sacred or terrifying experience. And because of this, the Jewish believers had an appropriately high view of angels. And so the author is, is using their reverence of angels to make an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if angels are great and to be honored, and rightly so, and if the message delivered by them was so accurate that it brought penalty if disobeyed, how much more will this be true of the infinitely greater Jesus and his infinitely greater message? So the problem was that these Jews had too low a view of Jesus in comparison to the angels. So this, again, probably doesn't make a ton of sense to us today because we don't really think a lot about angels, but maybe a good parallel for us is to think about how Americans regard celebrities. Just as Jews highly regarded angels, so Americans highly regard celebrities. Some people hear Beyonce speak and they think that she is speaking Holy Scripture. I don't get it, but some people really do. Um, people idolize actors, politicians, comedians. We're awestruck by celebrities in our culture. And the Jews were awestruck by angels in their culture. But Jesus is exalted over the angels. And so one reason that he's exalted above the angels is that he, and not the angels, is worshipped. So now we're going to go back to chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 5 says, to which of the angels did God ever say? And so this question is supposed to arouse within us a negative response. None of them. None of the angels ever had these words of sonship spoken over them. None of these angels were ever declared to be deserving of worship. Only the Son is worthy of worship. And only the Son will be worshipped by all people in creation, including angels. So, not only are angels not to be worshipped as Jesus is to be, but the angels themselves will take part in this worship of Jesus. And the reason that he is worshipped is because he is the Son. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. None of them. Only to Jesus were these words spoken. Or about Jesus. So what's the importance of Jesus' sonship? The word son here is actually loaded with centuries of meaning and anticipation. In the Old Testament, the son 
was to be the promised Messiah or king over Israel who would deliver them all from their enemies and usher them into uh, world dominance and peace. So what the author's saying is that the son alone deserves a place of highest honor. Only the son, this promised, expected deliverer, is to be worshipped. And if you didn't know, Jesus is the son. And another reason that Jesus is to be exalted above the angels is that he, and only he, the son, sits at the father's right hand. So now I'm going to look at chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. So I'm going to go to the end of the chapter now. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years have no end, will have no end. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? To sit at the right hand of a king was to enjoy a position of privilege and honor. That the son is eternally enthroned in the place of honor guarantees his superiority to all creation, including angels. And again, I'm not dismissing angels. They're amazing. They're God's chosen messengers who accomplish his purposes. But in verses 7 and 14, the angels are referred to as ministering spirits. Even more, verse 7 says... Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds. He makes them winds. Angels are made or created. Angels, though awesome, are part of creation, and the whole created order is in subjection to King Jesus. So the Jews are prone to regard angels too highly and Jesus too little. What are the ways in which you guys are prone to neglect the gospel today? It might be different for each one of you. Some of you might be hunting for spiritual highs or emotional experiences or signs from God. But maybe there's something else in your life that you're giving too much weight. What is stunning you more than Jesus today? What is in your life that you are listening to more than Jesus? We should hold fast to Jesus because he alone is exalted over the angels. And secondly, we should hold fast to the gospel message that Jesus has proclaimed because Jesus the Son reigns over the world. Now we're in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, 
Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Again, angels are God's messengers and his ministers of protection and provision and judgment. But the world to come is not subjected to them. The world to come is subjected to Jesus. However, as as the text states, things don't presently appear that way. Verses 8 and 9 read, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. I don't know if you guys remember, but Jesus' first coming was far from glorious. He was a carpenter from Nazareth whose public ministry led him to be mocked and crucified. Pretty far from glorious. And yet the rest of verse 9 says that he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. But you and I don't see that. You and I live in the tension between the already but not yet. So the already but not yet is a theological principle that, that signifies that Christian believers are currently taking part in the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom will not take full expression until sometime in the future when Jesus returns. So, for example, Christians enjoy the alreadiness of the atonement, right? Forgiveness of sins, adoption as children, the indwelling Holy Spirit. But there's a sense in which we will not see these things in totality until the last day. And so they always remain objects of faith. And in the same way, everything right now is in subjection to Jesus. For he will come and he will restore all things and he will judge all people. But at the same time, he hasn't yet returned and the world remains broken until the inauguration of his coming kingdom. You and I often see Jesus the crucified, but we don't often see Jesus the risen and reigning king. Has anyone here ever felt overwhelmed by the brokenness in the world? Everyone? There are like six hands, but I know you all have. Um, Has anyone here ever felt like God's silent? I'm not looking for hands, I know. Yeah. When you and I see our world, we don't see restored creation. We see a broken world marred by sin and in opposition to Christ and his church. Let me give you a couple examples. We see race crimes, and as of last week, on our own campus, hate letters. We see injustice in a country where rapists get three months in jail. We see babies getting murdered because it's more convenient for their parents. We see men and women all across this world who hate and despise Jesus because he claims to be the only way to God the Father. In my own life, guys, I painfully see both of my parents struggle with alcoholism. And I've cried out for deliverance for my parents many times. And I've yet to see that happen. And I've cried out to the Lord for personal deliverance from my pride and my anger and my selfishness. And that hasn't fully been realized yet either. It hasn't fully happened. Sometimes you and I feel like God is silent but he's not. The problem 
is that you and I don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. We see the not yet, but there is an already. You and I need to hold fast to his message, especially when it seems like God is silent and our suffering and the suffering of the world prevail. We need to hold fast to the gospel truth with hope that he will come soon or else we're going to drift off in despair to lesser things. Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand and his enemies, enemies of Christ in the cross will soon be made a footstool for his feet. And this makes Jesus so much more worthy of our unwavering devotion. Unlike the angel or anyone else, he alone rules over the world and will one day bring that reign to its consummation. That's good news. But the third reason we should hold fast to this message is because Jesus, king over all, humbled himself to be like us. So lastly, we should hold fast to the gospel message because Jesus the Son took on human flesh and became like us. Jesus, God's only Son in whom all the fullness of deity dwells, condescended to become like humanity on humanity's behalf. That's incredible. It's beyond words. And I'm going to share three quick reasons why I believe he did this on the basis of this text. So one reason that he did this was so that he could be perfected through suffering. So if you want to look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 10 says that it was fitting that the founder of salvation should be made perfect through suffering. So this is not implying that Jesus was once imperfect and had to become perfect. Being perfect here refers refers to learning obedience through suffering. And it's not saying that he went from disobedience to obedience. It's like Jesus went from untested obedience into and through suffering and emerged with attested and proven obedience. And why did he do that? Verse 10 says it's so that he could bring many sons to glory. Jesus came and suffered perfectly that he might do what we couldn't. You and I tend to complain and gripe in our suffering. Woe is me. But Jesus, in order to be the perfect substitute for us, had to do what we couldn't. So Jesus comes and suffers and emerges victorious, succeeding where we have failed, the perfect substitute for us, and all so that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory. But not only was he perfected through suffering, he also destroyed the power of death. So now, let's look at verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus shared in our flesh and blood that he might destroy he who has the power of death, the devil. How did Jesus do that? Jesus lived a perfect human life, which we could not, and was delivered up for our sins to die. And not only did he die, but he rose to new life, to glory. And in so doing, defeated Satan and defeated death. Our sins were with him in his death. And so, for everyone who trusts in him, they're cleansed from their sin. And the death grip of Satan over their life is removed. Jesus has rescued all who believe in him, who trust in the cross, from fear of death. And then the third reason that Jesus took on human flesh, verses 16 through 18, the rest of chapter 2. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. For those who are unfamiliar with this term, the high priest was the supreme religious authority of the Israelites, and on, or the religious leader, excuse me. And on the Day of Atonement, he would make a sacrifice for the nation of Israel to atone for all their sins committed in the past year. Without taking tons of time to develop it, Jesus took on human flesh to become our great high priest, to represent us in order to make atonement for our sins. And the difference between him and a human high priest is that Jesus didn't just make atonement for one year of sins for one country, but rather he made atonement for every sin ever committed for every person that would ever trust in him. Since Jesus has become like us in every respect, we should hold fast to his message. Jesus is not a distant savior. He became like us. He knows our weaknesses and our infirmities, and he sympathizes with us, and he helps us in our temptation. Not only that, but he solves our problem of sin. Jesus has saved those who trust in him. He came and lived the life that we were supposed to live, suffered in our place, destroyed the stronghold of death over our lives, and became our great high priest who atoned for our sins. This is our Jesus. All of the major points we looked at tonight find their purpose in this exhortation. Anchor yourselves to Jesus and his message so that you don't drift away from it. I have a friend who went to IU, and he and I were in the same high school class back when he was a Christian and I was not a Christian. Um, When he got to college, however, he started to drift spiritually. He didn't wake up one day and think, you know it would go great with my toast this morning, abandoning Jesus' hold over my life. Drifting, (laughs) that's so stupid. (laughs) Drifting happens, people. It happens. It doesn't take any effort. And it often happens without us intending on it. You know, it started with him skipping 
Bible reading and praying because of busyness. And then because he wasn't doing those things, he felt too guilty to be around Christians, so he stopped going to crew at IU and he stopped going to church. And then because of spiritually drifting from God, he began to feel longing for satisfaction, decided to turn to alcohol. But one try turned into many, and then many more things kept happening that kept him drifting. And then during his junior year, he realized what had happened and couldn't believe how far he drifted. Maybe this is where you are. Maybe you haven't drifted as far as my friend yet, or maybe you've drifted farther. Let me tell you something, though. My friend came back. Uh, he and I, or he had realized how he'd neglected God, how he'd neglected the gospel of salvation, and he turned back. And he told me all of this two summers ago when he and I were meeting to talk about my work with Crew. And now he, he supports my work with Crew. He's faithfully plugged into a local church. He's growing spiritually, and he has so much joy. Friends, because Jesus is so much greater than any other person or message, we should anchor ourselves to him. We should hold fast to Jesus and his gospel message to us. Guys, are you drifting? Fight and hold fast to Jesus. So some of you yeah, you told me to hold fast to Jesus like 10 times. I don't really know what that means. Like, how do I do that? Immerse yourself in community. Come to crew. Come to crew every week. Get involved in a Bible study in your residence hall. Read your Bible. Pray to God. And I, th I think one that seems like common sense, but I think we need to hear it is say no to temptation. When you're tempted to do something, ask yourself, you know, does this honor God? Does this help me love Jesus? Because it starts with one thing that doesn't help you love Jesus, and then it becomes easier to do more and more, and soon you don't hear his voice at all. I think that's what it looks like practically to hold fast to Jesus. And I invite you, Christian, hold fast. And if you're not a Christian tonight, you're already drifting. And you're going with the current of the world that will drag you to the precipice of eternal death. Chapter 2, verse 3, you don't have to go back to it, but it reads, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We won't. We won't. Jesus' salvation is the only salvation. But, whether, if you're drifting right now, Jesus Christ can make you alive in him. And he can cause you to anchor yourself to him if you just trust in him. Friends, hold fast to Jesus. Because he's better. He's better than the angels. His salvation is great because he is a great savior. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to look at Hebrews 1 and 2 tonight. And I just praise you for the truths of this text. Jesus is higher than the angels. Jesus is higher than all. Jesus is the only Son of God who sits at the Father's right hand 
And someday soon, all his enemies will be a footstool for his feet. Lord, help us to hold fast to this gospel message. There are a million different voices in our culture that tell us, if you just go this way, if you just go this way, that will cause us to drift away. Allow us to hold fast. And Lord, if there are people here tonight who aren't trusting in Jesus, cause them to cling to the rock, to Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this time tonight, I pray. Help us to hold fast to you. We'll love you more each day. Pray this in your name. Amen.